Welcome to Talking Tourism. This is our Tourism Champion Tales series. We showcase some amazing tourism champions who've made their mark on the tourism industry. Be inspired, awed and intrigued at their stories. And now, on to today's show. Hello, this is Talking Tourism and I'm today's host, David Reid. Every fortnight, the Tourism Industry Council of Tasmania brings you conversations and we try and involve the brightest minds of the industry and I've got one here with me today, Rob Pennicott. The Tourism Industry Council is the peak body of the tourism operators in the beautiful state of Tasmania. And each time we have a podcast, we talk about various topics, but today it's not a topic, it's a personality and it's a champion of tourism and we're so pleased that Rob's given us the time this afternoon. You might be listening to this outside of Tasmania, and if so, welcome, because some of the content of these podcasts are are interesting, and you can always uh, learn lessons from some of these tourism champions. So we welcome you if uh, wherever you're based. So Rob, welcome with that introduction. Um, Everybody knows about Pennicott Wilderness Journeys, but that's only been since 1999. Now, where did the Rob Pennicott start? And let's go back before that. Where did you go to school and, and how did all this begin? So let's go behind, or should I say, before 1999. Sure. Well, hi, Dave. And um, uh, like anyone, I was born at a very young age. And um, uh, from there, I um, uh, grew up, uh, I was born in South Australia, but at the age of three, I came across to Tasmania. And um, my parents lived at Risdon Vale for a while before buying a place in Blattons Bay. I grew up with Nick McKim on one side of the fence and um, and uh, he was a good friend of mine and the whole street had Heather Rose just down the road a little bit. So we were very good friends as well. And um, uh, I probably started my love of water and fishing about then. I used to row a dinghy with Nick McKim and catch uh, fish and we used to mainly just catch it for ourselves, um, but uh, I loved the water being both on it and in it. And soon after that, my parents moved to Tinderbox. And at the ripe old age of 12, I started my, uh, probably my entrepreneur, but my my, my daughter, I, I like her saying, she reckons it's entrepreneurs, and I think that's probably <laughs> a better way of explaining what I am. And um, at the age of 12, I used to door knock the whole of Kingston and Blattons Bay and Tinderbox and uh, tick those who used to buy fish off me, cross those that didn't. And I remember a moderately old lady in her 80s once saying, don't knock the door next door, he's a fisheries officer. So my whole <laughs> life would be different if I'd rock the no- uh, knocked the wrong door then. Anyway, I worked really hard from day to dark, cycling on a push bike three times a day, delivering fish. And my dad um, uh, lent me some money at 12. Uh, it was $3,000 because he didn't want me to wreck his dinghy. And, um, and uh, on the condition if I didn't pay it back over the school holiday, holidays, he'd do the bank thing and repossess it. And I managed to earn just over $6,000 in 10 weeks as a 12-year-old. So it sort of started where I am. And um, I then officially uh, um, sold to school. Uh, I went to Taruna High School 
And um, I am Blattons Bay Primary School and I sold my fish to the teachers at Taruna and I reckon if I'd got caught doing that, I'd have made front page of the Mercury, I reckon, at the time. And I poached till I was 17 and um, hopefully all stat decks are uh, uh, well and truly gone by now. And uh, so the day I was allowed to own a licence, I did, and I bought a little 17-foot dinghy and uh, worked really hard netting and selling fish and um, and um, with a license, with a license, with a license, without doubt. And then I went from there, and um, um, I bought uh, what was called Kingfisher Seafoods. Uh, when I caught a lot of fish, so did everyone else. The beach price went down, and um, and retail price stayed high. So I decided to um, um, get a retail outlet, and um, I was working for a credit union at that time for about four years, and um, got told some very important things in life that if you wanted to go places, you'd have to change your laugh, believe it or not. And um, and same board member said to me that if I, um, at the second interview for the boss's job, that if I... Um, if I um, um, if I was a bit older, I would have got that job. But being at the age I was, 21, I went then into um, Kingfisher Seafoods and resigned the next day uh, from um, uh, from uh, working in the credit union. And then I um, did that for quite a few years. But the sort of person I was, um, I worked really hard. For four, five o'clock in the morning having slept in the boat uh, for the night and then next day working um, on the boat till about 11 o'clock in the morning and then to about 10 o'clock at night in the restaurant and take away and then back out on the water till midnight and then Where, where was this? Where uh, was that was South Bruny, so um, coming out of Tinderbox. and yeah. um, uh, So, you know. Uh, so Kingfisher Seafood was where? It was at Kingston. The Kingston. Mm. So you, you, you were... You were fishing as well as having the retail. You you were both. You that's called the vertical integration, is it? Of the yes, business. You were a bit of everything. It was, but I took a lot of friends with me, and it's what sowed the seed in '99. Uh, I used to take them underneath the high sea cliffs in the southern hemisphere into caves up against blowholes, meeting all the locals, which was the dolphins, seals, whales, and and um, they were people used to the water, and I used to blow them away. So that's what sowed the seed to start what people know me as now in nineteen. 19- Mm-hmm. So you started off in 1999. I understand that you lost money the first year. Yep, I lost $40,000 the first year. <laughs> That's not bad. That's not a bad start. Good. I used to chase after render cars in good weather and say, have I, I got a deal for you? <laughs> yeah, And I, I don't discount now, that's for sure. So it is quite funny. <laughs> so you started off and you lost money. In the year 2000 or 2001, I came down on one of your trips with a group of six or seven of us, and you took us out and it was cloudy. And we couldn't see the tops of the cliffs. We, in fact, we didn't see anything, but we had a wonderful day. So you were a very good interpreter in those days. It could be or it could be the ginger tablets we gave you. <laughs> Maybe they weren't ginger. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever it was, we all had a good time. <laughs> and people have been having a good time ever since. So tell me the, tell me the progress. So you, you started off obviously at Bruni and still there, and that has had its own product life cycle, but at the same time you've been growing lots of other products as well. Tell us all about that. Yeah, sure. So um, what happened in 1999, I started with a 12-seat boat that was 28 foot long. We had that for, or I had that for three years. I then moved to a 
a 44-foot, 48-passenger Noosa cat, made the big mistake and said to my beautiful wife, isn't this boat beautiful? I will never want another boat again. And um, and I used that one for three years. Um, having uh, It was interesting. Uh, the third year I had the 12-seat boat. I was turning away more people than I was taking, running up to three trips a day and expanding into the larger boat. Um, um, everyone said it wouldn't work because it's only worth because it's small and I love it when people tell me something won't work. Um, It makes me, it drives me a bit harder. And then uh, that boat was great from day one and three years later, again, I was turning away a lot of people and um, so that's when I expanded to multiple boats, multiple crews. I had three boats built for Bruny Island cruises and that went really well. And then with the success of that, I didn't, I wanted to slow down the rate of growth for Bruny Island. So that's when I set up Tasman Island Cruise, which was a similar uh, setup, just a different location. That didn't have the same growing pains that um, uh, Bruny Island Cruise did because of the recognition that I did have. I then set up a land-based tour on Bruny Island called Bruny Island Traveller. And then it was time for our children to move to high school. And on Bruni, there was no high school. So I decided um, that uh, I was going to, we were going to keep the family together and move up to um, Hobart. And when we got there, I wanted to justify my existence in Hobart. So I decided to set up two more businesses. One was Iron Pot Cruise and the other one was um, um, Tasmanian Seafood Seduction, which is our premium product. And then um, uh, soon after that, we got the licence to uh, deliver people to the Three Capes track for the um, uh, parks, which was really good. And more recently, we got the contract with Taz Walking Company to deliver their people to the Three Capes track. And then more recently, um, we've set up at Wilson's Prom in Victoria, 23rd of September, after 11 years of preparation, preparation, um, that one's set up and um, who knows, we've got a fair bit still around the corner, I think, Dave. So, Wilson's Prom. Now, I... I've met you on a number of uh, social occasions and I've, I've been very rude to you, I know, and I apologise for that, saying you're a healthy and wonderful Tasmanian and why have you gone to Victoria? Well, I think <laughs> Your it's... brand is all about Tasmania. <laughs> what have you been doing to us? I think, I think that it's fair to say that um, it's a Tassie export. It's very interesting that when we go off the beach at Tidal River in world first boats that are amphibian boats that um, are the world's largest amphibian boats, that off Wilson's Prom, the nearest island is Redondo that is Tasmanian and that's four kilometres off the coast. That's all. That's all, yep. So people say, we always say on every trip we do a lot of cross-selling to Tasmania. (laughs) And uh, so uh, it's a lovely spot. It's granite just like the East Coast is. But uh, that's why I did it. And also when I take boats across Bass Strait, there's one place I stay for a couple of hours and that is Wilson's Prom. I find it spiritual. I find it amazing and it's another beautiful part of the world. Mm-hmm. So tell me, was it more difficult setting up in a business in Victoria than it is to set up a new business in Tasmania? There's no doubt that... Parks Victoria hadn't gone through a level of partnership before like they have with me. It was 11 years from when I first approached the subject to it being in fruition. Probably the last seven years was going through 
the process of approvals and also getting a boat designed and built that wasn't even existing in the world at the time. And then the other big difference was whenever we've expanded in Tasmania, we've expanded in a way that staffing, you've brought a few into a lot of people. So the culture was really easy to show. The culture in Victoria was zero of the Pennycott brand. So for me to go in and train 12 beautiful people from scratch was a very big workload when some are farmers, some are fishermen, some are all local, very original, authentic people. But it's been a big, big step to train have, 12 people from have, scratch. Have you sprinkled your Victorian operation with Tasmanians? Have you got some some Tasmanians working over there for you? Or No, I didn't do that. You started all scratch. Started all from scratch. Okay. There is one Tasmanian who works there who is new to me and he also works in Tasmania. Um, but um, I decided that we would start afresh. Right. Okay. That different language problem is the word. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, that mainlander <laughs> accent. You're quite right, David. In all of this, and all of that enormous growth that you've just outlined, I mean, it, it's breathtaking. Um, and and I've been a small business operator for a long time, and I can't get over past you know two or three people at once. Um, there's a number of things that that are ringing bells in my ears about how. What are the what are the key ingredients of your success after that? I suppose it's twenty years, is it now? Twenty year success story. Can you distill it down to some, you know, simple logic? Uh, is is there a, is there a is there a train of 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 success factors that you are able now to identify? Mm, I would say genuine passion for what I do because that helps you through the tougher times and it's infectious to your staff. I think having an incredibly good team of staff behind you so you can expand and continue to do other things and take them on the journey inspires them and gives them opportunity as well. I think to have a core product that is wonderful is really important as well. Um, I would say having a friendly bank is very important. For me, I couldn't (laughs) expand without one of those. But I think it's about partnerships. I think it's getting the community on side. Um, I'll I'll go actually a bit better on that, 98% of community on side. 2% isn't worth spending 90% of your effort on, which is what I did at first. But it's the sustainable practices that is really important and I think it's the partnerships right down from the local area, the state level, the international level and to recognise that you think you're pretty good but you're nothing without everyone else doing a good job in Tasmania and Australia to make Australia or Tasmania or Bruny Island or Port Arthur the destination, you need um, more than just yourself and it's Mm. about partnerships. So your business has been a catalyst, if I could use that word, for Bruni. Because without Rob Pennicott, Bruni wouldn't be what it is today. I mean, there are other people there, obviously, that make cheeses and chocolates and oysters and wine and all those other things. And Bruni is a, is a destination now in its own right. But without you, you were the you were the beginning of all of this growth, I'd have to say. And so, so you've had an impact on, you know, 
Well, there's more accommodation. They're accused for ferries. There are land prices have gone up. Um, employment's been increased no end. The local government is a bit interesting. Um, and as I said, it's now a destination in its own right. How do you view all those changes to Bruni? Are you are you you now don't live there like you used to when you first started? Do you still own that property around Cloudy Bay that you used to live in, or did you sell it? I still own that property, yeah, yeah. and we get down when we can. Yeah. I th- I think that it's fair to say when I started, Heber had started a little bit before me. That's the chocolate place, but. Other than that, a couple of accommodation was all that was there and it is true that we've spent millions of dollars on um, um, advertising and promotions and the word of mouth and it has been a catalyst for many other businesses, both, um, you know, um, uh, the food, the accommodation, the activities. But I think and I'm a believer that tourism statewide has a similar Um, a similar story. But I think if you look at all the possible economic pillars for driving um, the economics of Tasmania, I don't believe you get a better one than tourism because at the end of the day, I believe when our visitors go, some of them stay, some of them become um, um, uh, living in the area. But I think, I think, we don't really change anything before um, to, to, to before when we started. But also for me, it's clean, sustainable. And if you looked at nearly everybody who's concerned with the tourism numbers and that, I think most of them would have been a tourist themselves. And I think the true locals that are generational, they are very, very accepting of tourism because they see all the benefits of employment and stimulation in the local economy. And they come from families that are farming and logging and mining and things. And they love seeing that economic stimulation. It reminds them of their old days. Mm, mm, mm. So- you're a carbon neutral business. We are, and as because this is a, a good segue about saying how how we don't leave much of a footprint on the planet. Um, I want to turn more now to your. You, you've got some very high sustainable practices, and personally, I know of a number of awards you've won um, about that. But I'm I'm very keen to pursue your philanthropy because. Most of Tasmanians would have a little knowledge, but I don't think people really fully understand the Pennicott Foundation and what you've been able to do. And um, I don't want to be too much of a sycophant about all this, but I really do take my hat off to some of the some of the extraordinary uh, jobs that you've done. And I wanted to talk to you about how this all started, because I understand that it started not as the Pennicott Foundation, but as the Tasmanian Coast Conservation Fund. Is that right? Yeah. So what happened, David, even before that, I believe that if you can't operate a business to make the world a better place, you probably shouldn't be operating the business in the first place. And before the Tas Coast Conservation Fund, I was giving money away to things like the local school for the Learn to Swim programs, beach cleanups, and a few other things like that. And then I wanted to go through at a bigger level and that's when I approached 
parks and um, and it was at a time then that Wildcare were looking at ways of raising more money and the Taz Coast Conservation Fund was one that I was the original founder of and um, and for the first couple of years I think I might have been the only donor in it as well <laughs> uh, but we the very first project we did through that I gave $65,000 one year that was the money that brought some people from New Zealand to do a program to eradicate the cats on Tasman Island. And um, and then we continued giving money to that. And about, I thought it would be just, uh, you know, six months and it would be all over, but it went for about four years. And, um, and it's quite incredible that these cats were killing an estimated 50,000 seabirds a year. And with the work of volunteers, parks and our money, um, we managed to eradicate them and um, to then look at what was, you know, just nothing but cats and dead birds to then going into the caves and the infrared cameras and seeing, I think Noah, my son and I, looked through nearly 4,000 photos of fledglings and everything and even if that was the only project we ended up doing, I can't tell you how that felt to me to be part of that one. And from there, um, we came uh, to a level with the Taz Coast Conservation Fund that they wanted my money donated to it without giving me the project that we would be aiming to do. So that's what took me then from then about another two or three years to get a, a DGR1 status um Pennycott Foundation up and going and... Um, what, hang on, what was that stage? Uh, sorry, DGR1, it means fully tax deductible. Oh, sorry. Okay, right. which okay. is the same level as um, as um, um, something like Red Cross and that sort of thing. Yep. And, um, and so between the operating business of Pennycott Wilderness Journeys and the foundation. Last year, we gave to um, 431 organisations or projects of our own. Some of them were very much in kind, but a lot was money. And, um, you know, and it's quite amazing how that arm has grown for sure. Dr. Sue Robinson. 10 islands in 10 years. What's that project? Well, Sue is an absolute trooper, works for parks. She's got a good team of dogs that are trained for various things like sniffing out rabbits and rats and all sorts of things. And uh, her idea is to uh, eradicate feral species on particular islands to, and restore islands to they were, the way they were before human intervention and she's tackling one island each year. Last year we finished, maybe the year before, Big Green Island where we killed about 50,000 rats that were killing about 30,000 seabirds a year, worked with the farmer, indigenous groups, parks and volunteers again. Uh, this year we're... Um, where, where, where's Big Green Island? Uh, in the, um, in the um, Ferno group. Oh, okay. It's more or less off Flinders off Island. Flinders Island, yeah. On the western side. And we're currently working on Fisher Island for um, a restoration of a hut and another little island just off the corner of Tassie where we're at eradicating rats as well and we've got a donation going on Metsika at the moment. I was there last week actually about uh, sheer waters and and feral weeds. But Sue's a trooper. She's she works so hard and does such a good job. Just on, on sheer waters, um, 
there was some commentary recently that they haven't come back in their numbers that they should this year. Is that correct? Yeah, look, there's. Um, I think a lot of that has come from a lot of dead birds being seen at various places of the world more than usual. Um, they're currently doing, it isn't until they're in the nests, the chicks are born, that they can do the surveys ah, to right, actually okay. really determine and they think they will be down a bit but they don't know what level at this stage. Because 10 years ago you said you wanted to be giving 25% of your, well, whether it was income or I'm not sure, 25% away anyway in 10 years' time and it's horribly close to that 10 years and I was wondering um, I was wondering how that's going in the sense that are you are you comfortable now with the Pennycott Foundation? Has it exceeded all of your expectations? Yeah, look, in 2011 when I went around Australia in a 17-foot rubber dinghy to raise money and awareness to work with Rotary and the Bill Gates Foundation to try and eradicate polio from the planet, I gave away 85% of my net profits that year and my bank said to me, that's all very well doing that this year, Robert, but do not do it again because it did put the pressure on us financially while we owed a lot of money. Um, And we have had a very good pattern of giving 25% of our net profits to donation, conservation and charity from um, between the Pennycott Foundation and the Pennycott Wilderness Journeys um, Trading Company. We're starting to not say the 25% now because some years are more, some years are less and it's really hard to justify. But it is a, a huge amount of resources and money and time that goes into that now. You, you, you stole my thunder about the polio trip. I was going to come to that next. But anyway, I, I just wanted to, whilst, whilst we're t- t- still talking about your philanthropic work and the Pennycott Foundation, I'm fascinated to understand, first of all, how do you pick a worthy cause? And secondly, what is the Tasmanian Island Ark Project? We don't know that one. I was looking at it somewhere. Yeah, look, um, um, a worthy cause. We get a lot of people ask for a lot of things and it's rare that we can't help in some case if it's one that I don't – we rarely don't give – trips away that can be raffled and that sort of thing. And that can assist when I can't assist in other ways. But when it's financial and money and especially if they take years to to do, that does take a bit more planning. But we do say no sometimes, but vastly we say yes to them. And only occasionally have we had really unworthy causes, like someone wanted to raise money for a a party once for them, for themselves, which was really crazy. Well, Sounds funding. like a good idea for you, yeah. hey? <laughs> and um, um, and there was a, an equally weird one once and they're the only two that were a flat no. There's a lot of good people asking but we can't say yes to everything. And, and have you been able to get that wonderful goal of no admin costs in the Pennycott Foundation so yeah. every dollar goes straight to the cause? That's right. So um, the the to run the Pennycott Foundation is completely administered by the trading company and so every cent that goes through the foundation mm. is a cent of outcome. So that works out well. That's absolutely wonderful. Mm. Yeah. Well, I, mean, I, I think most of the people listening would have to take, take their hat off and say that the, the, the idea of a successful business generating 
a successful foundation that does successful conservation projects is a wonderful, wonderful loop. So congratulations on that. Yeah, and on the carbon offset side too, we work closely with Greening Australia and we've given them I think about 30000 under half a million dollars over the year, years and it's, it's quite phenomenal that as well because when we do run boats and we do use fuel, it's really nice to be responsible for having planted hundreds and hundreds of thousands yeah, of off, trees. to offset mm. that, yeah. So <clears throat> that's obviously the Nick McKim influence at a very early age where <laughs> you've become <laughs> the, uh, the green warrior that you are. Why would you then think that, and, and this is, again, a worthy cause, I, I might devote all of my 85% of my net profit this year to a different cause, which is polio eradication. What was the inspiration for that? Is, is that touched your family or is that – how did that – what's the inspiration? Yeah, just going back one one thing you mentioned, Nick McKim then. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Will Hodgman um, used to buy a lot of fish and chips from a fish and chip shop too, so <laughs> he was just down the road as well, so that right. worked out well. But um, as far as choosing, the, choosing what was going to happen that year, I wanted to get – try and come up with an idea that could get global following. And we reached over 21 million people on social media and um, through different articles of hard copies. And I thought that polio would have an ending by now. It's very, very close, but I wanted to choose something that would have a, an ending to it. So then I can clearly say that's finished and something else starts. And also I needed it uh, to be a challenge enough to get a following for. So that hence that was a 17-foot rubber dinghy with eight inches of freeboard and no toilet. And, um, and um, I hadn't been touched by anyone with polio directly. However, it was really humbling experience to meet everyone as I went around who had and it was just a phenomenal exercise. Yeah, it was amazing. This is a, I mean, to take off in a small little vessel to go right around Australia must take a little bit of preparation. (laughs) Tell me how you went about it. It was quite funny, David. I got my operations manager, Mick Suit, around one night and gave him a meal with a couple of bottles of red and then we got the bottle of whiskey out and I said, how about we try and make a difference to this world and go around Australia in a 17-foot rubber dinghy, etc." And without the adjectives, he said, you are mad. Anyway, so I got out the Jacaranda Atlas, which um, not many of you would probably know what that is, but it's a little atlas. And when you look at Australia on a map, it doesn't look very big. And so that night we spent till three o'clock in the morning on Google Earth planning the trip and three months later we actually started it. But in the morning he did say to me, so Robert, um, uh, what did I say yes to? And when I told him he actually gave a few more adjectives than he gave the night before. But then when we uh, put it all into fruition, we wanted to uh, get a cinematographer. We had uh, National Geographic on board and we also had Cannes TV on board and um, and uh, we went round and out of about 270 expressions of interest when they realised what we were doing and how we were doing it, it only came down to three people. One was a 26-year-old Polish lady that Mick reckons I should have given her the job even if she only lasted a week and uh, one 
didn't turn up for the interview and the third person that got it was a guy called Zorro. And I think there's more interesting stories about Zorro um, than, um, what, uh, than me talking for 20 minutes here to you. These aren't your normal boats. You had to build them specially? Yeah, the person who's built about 20 boats for me press-plated uh, some th- uh, two aluminium boats and they were real bangers. They were flat bottom. We hold them in the first couple of weeks. In the end, we had to put venturis in them so all the water that came went out and um, they only took about two months to build them and um, they, uh, they we were just sewing them, hold, holding them together with glue by the end of it. <laughs> right, yeah. Good eye. And the results, where is the polio uh, situation, if that's the word, in the world today? Okay, when I started, there was five countries that needed um, uh, to eradicate polio. Uh, Now it's only down to two, Afghanistan and Pakistan. And the problem with those two is there's some remote areas that that um, the people with vaccines can't get into or won't be let into. And um, there's, it's so close and I do believe it will get there, but they're just working out programs of getting yeah. into those last couple of places. Okay. Um, thanks for all that, Rob. I'm, I'm, I asked earlier about what are the key success, um, key success pointers that you had you're also a great leader. What are your tips for leadership? Well, I don't know if my tips are good, but I'll tell you what I do. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm looking yeah, for. Yeah, um, I definitely lead from example and there isn't a job I wouldn't do. Um, you know, if a bus broke down, I'd be underneath it. If a toilet got blocked, I'd be head first, not quite head first, but I'd be right <laughs> into it. And I think it's important to um, to get the right staff. And for me, it's about getting people who are passionate about following the journey that are nice people. And then we pay for training and assist with training. If they're trained, that's a bonus as well. Um, I think um, I, for me, it's when things are roughly under control, I like to do something else, which then gives the rest of my staff a journey to follow with the opportunities that I mentioned earlier on. Um, And, um, and I would say having a mind that you don't think there's anything that's impossible. So if you dream something and you go and talk to people and say you can't do it, it's impossible, I think that just spurs you more to get it over the line. And the number of times I've been told in my journey that you won't be able to do anything, you can't do that, and then we work out ways of doing it. It's phenomenal. And it's those new ideas, innovative ideas that then become the thing that other people around the world follow uh, that excite me the most as long as I can keep innovating new things that then they have to follow. Where are the three places you most want to visit? The three places I most want to visit, okay, I would say one is one that I regularly visit every year and that is Port Davie. I absolutely love it. 
uh, get down there and it's like stepping back in time 10 times over and I just potter with my family and friends on a boat and, you know, catch some fish and, um, you know, just outside Port Davey that is because it's all National Park inside and um, <laughs> and um, and uh, just relax and bushwalk and that sort of thing and it's really extreme. Uh, a place I would like to visit will be uh, Nepal and go trekking up in around there. I haven't done that yet but it's on our shortlist and there's areas of Japan. I've been there a few times but there's some areas there I'd like to go and have a look at more than I have. But the world's a big place and there's a lot of other areas in in Australia and overseas I'd like to visit. And Antarctica for sure. Yeah, that's four. Sorry. <laughs> have as many as you like. Yeah. Let's put the let's put the Rob Pennicott crystal ball to work, please. I want to think want you to think about where we are heading in Tasmania in our tourism business. There are um, places which are popular and places which are not quite so popular. And we've talked about um, what's happened on Bruni uh, and the extraordinary growth that's happened in your business and the associated incremental gains in all the other businesses around your success. But let's think about the TT line and its new ships and let's let's put a bigger hat on than just yours. And how do we think we're going to be going in Tasmania over the next few years? Do you see any pitfalls that we've got to be careful of? Uh, do you see any great advantages happening? Let's see hear your crystal ball about the next 10 years. Okay, look, I, I think it was totally wrong to go for a target of number of people. I'm into... Um, sustainable growth at, you know, one or two percent and high yield um, and look for yield on people which are from people, which is really important. I think that the tendency is when Tasmania goes through a boom, which it had done up to a couple of years ago, and then it's now flattened off. If you look back through history, you know, it probably would have been probably would have even been Rest Point Casino and probably would have been certainly the TT, uh, the Spirits back in the Jim Bacon days, and then it definitely would be Mona. If you look at a pattern, each of those give a spike and then it flattens off from that spike. Okay, we're in a flattening off period now, so this is the time I think we should really knuckle down about sustainability um, and um, and higher yield from people. I think... Um, Obviously, when the spirits come on in a couple of years, the new spirits, their capacity is potential to put in 40% extra people into regional Tasmania. So that is going to be another spike. I think we get one chance at that and the government and also industry has to spend money on infrastructure and be ready for that and people should look at the opportunities that that will present. And I think the important thing is that Growth has to be done with the community behind behind it. I think it's uh, the visitor economy in its true sense is getting down to the grassroots of the service station, the grocery store, the accountants, the, you know, the banks, the everything. And so we can all see how that will be, again, good for the economics for the state. And I think um, I think that growth is going to happen between now and 2030. And we've just got to be careful just how that's done. The cruise ships, I think we've got to be a little bit careful about. Uh, there's a place for them. And there's certain areas of Tasmania that love them, like Port Arthur and Burnie. Hobart likes some, but I think 
at the moment, there's no real restriction of how many and when and what time of the year. And so I think we've got to, again, get the number in that won't destroy the amenity to the uh, Hobart community who live there. And and then that's all then, you know, part of what I'm saying, community to go with it. I think more opportunities arise for small niche products where owner operators take 10 to 20 people out to do various things around the state. And I think there's a huge opportunities in there, as we've seen. I think the boutique things like golf and fishing, fishing is underdone in Tasmania big time at the moment, and there's huge opportunities there. Um, maybe not the trout fishing, but the sea fishing. Uh, but I think niche is what Tasmania is all about. And I think that bit of water between Victoria Victoria and here is an asset for Tasmania making it an island because, again, it just puts the price up out of the reach for the real mass market where still on the Great Ocean Road, the yield in the last 10 years have gone from 19 cents a person to 61 cents a person. And if that happened in Tasmania, it would be good night, I reckon. <laughs> so high yield, is uh, well, that's basically what I think. Mm. So, if, yeah, so... so- your commentary is really about saying that Tasmania has got a very bright future uh, with a sustainable and and boutique view of tourism, not mass tourism. Is that what we're saying? That yeah, we're without doubt. And it's also showing the kids of the day um, to really see how um, uh, there's a great industry to be, a great career to be in tourism and whether it's frontline or behind the scenes and also people who might not have thought of a career in in um, tourism that are older to see there's actually an incredible industry because people are on a high, both staff, owners and the guests, 98.99.9% of everyone who is on holiday is on a high and that's infectious. And so um, I think there's a great future uh, for Tasmania and tourism for sure. Well, unless you have any other comments, I would have thought that's a wonderful place to finish, Rob. Yep, sounds good. <laughs> I wanted to say how generous it is of you to give us uh, give us uh, your time today. Thank you very much for calling in. And may we wish you and uh, Noah and Mia and McKay, your lovely wife, may we wish you all a happy and safe Christmas. And same to you, David. Thanks, and, mate. Uh, Thank you for listening to all of our lovely people and I hope you got some value tips and interesting ideas from Rob. It's been inspirational. Uh, thanks again, Rob. Um, I would I hope you've enjoyed today's show. Please tell your tourism colleagues to listen to and thanks for listening and we'll hear from you again in a fortnight. You've been listening to Talking Tourism, brought to you by Tourism Industry Council Tasmania. For show notes, other materials and episodes, head to tict.com.au. Be sure to come back every fortnight for a new instalment of Talking Tourism.